This is Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm your co-host and executive producer, Greg Masters, the Managing Director of Health Innovation Media. Joining me in our state-of-the-art virtual studio is the co-founder and principal co-host of Pop Health Week, Fred Goldstein, who also serves as president of Accountable Health, LLC. Pop Health Week is a conversational platform where industry leaders and stakeholders from various sectors, such as payers, providers, patients, vendors, and regulatory communities, converge to share best practices and strategies in population health. Connect with us via www.popupstudio.productions or follow and direct message me on Twitter at Greg Masters MPH, and that is Greg with two G's, or Fred Goldstein, and that's at FS Goldstein, or on the web via www.accountablehealthllc.com. On today's episode, we have the pleasure of hosting Matthew Cull, the Chief Information Officer at the Cleveland Clinic. In this role, he leads Cleveland Clinic's information technology strategy, working with clinical partners and caregivers across the health system to enhance patient care through innovative technologies. And now, without further ado, I hand the reins over to Fred. Take it away. Thanks so much, Greg and Matt. Welcome to Pop Health Week. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to get you on. Why don't we start, uh, as we typically do, why don't you provide us with a little bit of your uh, background experience? Certainly. Um, I'm about a Gosh, going on 30-year technology veteran. Um, I've served in multiple industries, but for the last 20 in healthcare. Uh, started in pharma and moved to hospitals. Um, I'm currently the enterprise chief information officer for the Cleveland Clinic. And prior to this role, um, I was the senior vice president and chief information officer of Parkland Health and Hospital System in Dallas. So have uh, spent time in energy and telecom and, and consumer packaged goods uh, early in my career, but it definitely has been a uh, wide set of experiences, but healthcare has, has definitely taken my passion for quite a while. Yes, you really bring in some diverse backgrounds into the healthcare arena, which typically provides a slightly different view of what we're doing with our data and how we work with it, right? Exactly. So exactly. we had a fascinating discussion on AI and ML and this whole new explosion of large language models and how we think they might be impacting healthcare, sort of give us your 50,000 foot view of what's going on here. Um, it's, it's fascinating because you and I spoke just three or four weeks ago and over the last three or four weeks, I've seen things that I didn't think we were going to see for another year or two. Um, I, I think this period that we're entering has been the fastest, evolution of technology ever. I think Moore's law is completely broken at this point. Um, for healthcare, I think there's there's three primary areas that AI is going to create benefit for not only caregivers, but patients. Um, and maybe we could discuss all of them, um, but take them apart a little bit. Um, first is I think decision support is going to be an all new wave of how physicians engage with knowledge, how clinicians across all delivery networks engage with knowledge. Um, today, where there's reference guides and um, the ability to look for journal entries, the, the new way of thinking is you're going to be able to prompt a question and get the whole world's knowledge almost instantly, but refined in a way that allows you to make quick decisions. 
I don't think we're at a place where we're replacing anybody yet, but I do think that it will become the new desk reference, if you will, um, and it will really bring a wealth of knowledge much faster, both to physicians and research, as well as the bedside. The second area that I think is going to be remarkable is around productivity. Um, just in the last week, Microsoft has announced their OpenAI embedded AI assistant into Microsoft Office for the low, low price of $30 a month. You can have a AI-based bot that lives with you in all of your productivity. So when you think about writing documents, doing uh, presentations, large spreadsheets with complex calculations, any of the things that we normally do on a day-to-day -day basis, that whole world is about to change. It's going to change in a way that enables me or you or anyone for that matter to do more complicated activity faster. Um, I think it's going to change a lot of things about how we think about writing agreements and contracts and professional letters and correspondence and memorandum. All of the way we have belabored over the keyboard um, will change and it will go much faster. And the last thing, and I think this is going to be the most important thing that AI is bringing about is I generally believe there's a universal acceptance that there will not be enough people to do the work, especially in healthcare, over the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And if we universally believe that there's not going to be enough people to do that work, then the, the only truth is that machines are going to have to replace that activity, which I think is going to do two things. One, it will allow us to upskill all of the all of the people who contribute to the healthcare industry to do higher function, higher level activity that are not appropriate for machines yet. I suspect it'll come at some point. Um, but reduce the administration that happens on low low level tasks and move to machine completely. Um, I think it's going to bring around a bit of a revolution in how we educate, a bit of a change in how we think about staffing, where we think about training and educating uh, people for specific high-level tasks. I, I think it's going to be a remarkable change. Mm -hmm. So let's sort of, as you talked about, let's unbundle these three areas. So the first one is really a, cl a clinical area, decision support, as you talk about. And I've heard a lot of concern. Well, you think we're going to replace doctors. We're not going to replace doctors, you know, and I've, I've heard most people say that'll never happen. Um, I'm just, as I look at some of these, I do see some functions, I think within there where clearly there's some expertise or some ability by these machine learning or AI products to go ahead and provide either support or make a system better and potentially do take out some of the work. Is that how you see it or how far can that potentially go? I, I think for now, um, because this is all very fresh and it's been proven to give some really bad advice at, at times, we're not replacing anybody at the bedside very soon. Um, I sort of think it's akin to the fact that autopilot has generally been able to take off, fly, and land a plane since the 80s, and there's still a pilot up there. Because I'll tell you, I would not be comfortable in a plane without a pilot. And I suspect that all of humanity is going to be very nervous about being in a bed without a physician bedside taking care of them. Where I do think that there is um, incredible opportunity is in monitoring 
Um, you know, a lot of people have been trying to solve sepsis for a long time. And sepsis is a tricky one because you could be actively watching a patient and not notice that they go into septic shock. And so I think that there's going to be opportunity around monitoring, around quality and safety, ensuring right drug, right patient, right lab, right patient. Labs are going to change um, dramatically in how they're read and how we think about them from a patient perspective. Um, my own biological chemistry is certainly different than yours. And therefore, maybe my lab ranges would probably be a little bit different as we learn more about me as a human. I also think an area that is going to be incredibly impactful is inside of imaging. Um, not only the ability to suss out and identify the thing that they're trying to diagnose, but also in incidental findings, because it is an incredible travesty. Whenever someone has a chest X-ray, um, because perhaps they have a fractured clavicle and they miss the very small nodule that's in the lung that develops into lung cancer and dramatically reduces life. And had that incidental finding been found at that point um, and identified, perhaps a different outcome for that patient would have occurred. I think AI is going to change that game completely. Um, so the real opportunity is how do we augment how do we think about, you know, even today in the health record for mo many things, there's always a link to a platform called UpToDate. And it's basically a large library of medical um, knowledge. And rather than having to scour those articles to find the specific piece of information that a physician is looking for, what if I could bring summarized information about that specific patient based on phenotypic data that's in their chart? front and center for a physician to read quickly. What about during rounding, if the chart is summarized in a way, the physician notes are summarized, eliminating the, you know, the longstanding copy paste, et cetera. What if those are summarized and directly next to it is a summary of articles that are relevant to that patient's condition? I think that we're at this point where those things are becoming possible and it's going to enable physicians and other bedside caregivers to have more information and more insight and make better clinical decisions, which they have been trained for. Mm -hmm. I think that's the very near future um, of AI at the bedside. And, and one of the issues you raise is obviously your, your clinical data and its meaning may be different than mine. And Absolutely. so that leads to this issue that we've discussed a, a couple of times and come up a lot is bias in the data or lack of appropriate data size or individuals, et cetera. How do we get beyond that? Where's, where, where are we with that? Well, I, I mean, the tricky part about this is that we as a, as a humanity in the United States have a long history of bias. And that represents and manifests itself in the data that is the historical library of data that we have. And when you're training these algorithms, they use that historical data to make predictions about the future, to get smarter. I think we have to, to be very specific and very cautious about how we treat these language models in a way that helps the, the transformation that occurs between large model and output to be aware and sensitive to potential biases. I, I think that's one aspect. The second thing, 
um, that you spoke about, about me being different than you, is maybe the the real end state is that the algorithm or the language model is taking into account the library of medical knowledge um, and only evaluating it against what it knows about me and potential fl potentially flagging my record for areas where there may have been a historical entry that was clearly of bias and raises that notification now to the current person who's taking care of me. You might want to reevaluate this and you might want to reevaluate it because we're indicating that this might be a topic of bias and someone else should look at it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting that it's, that it's purposeful um, that somebody would include something in my medical chart that wasn't appropriate, but I think that, you know, everyone is facing different things every day and a second check on something that might be suspect. The worst thing that happens is that we confirm that what's there is correct, but the alternatively, I may have a better outcome as a result mm -hmm. by the removal or the double check of something that could be suspect of, of that kind of bias. And I think yeah. the language models and this kind of AI are something that can help us with that. Really but interesting way to look at that. Fascinating. Let's go to number two, productivity uh, that you mentioned. Obviously, you know, you're seeing some things already happening now, and I've seen it myself and using these models, how much more productive I can be just letting it do basic tasks for me that used to take time. It does it quickly. I then add my expertise, fix it up, whatever, whether it's an email or a document or something like that. Is that where you're seeing most of this and expect that to happen? What are some of the other areas? So I think there's two things. And let me give you an example of how I've used it today and then other things that works we have experimented with very recently. So today, I get a survey back about caregiver engagement from from Press Ganey about what has happened about how my team is feeling. There's hundreds and if not thousands of comments. I asked, I fed those comments to ChatGPT and I said, "Give me themes and also give me ideas based on you know organizational behavior and and other research in this area of how." I can be a better leader um, for the themes that are in these in these survey comments. And out it came, 10 things that were very important with, with research or HBR article or publication or books that were relevant to those specific areas where there was negative feedback. And it did it in eight seconds. That's something that I could have spent a month on. And then I immediately prompted it to say, okay, well, give me summaries of the publications that you've put forth. I, and it's funny that we call GPT U um, because it's getting this almost human factor to it, but give me summaries and salient point of these publications. And here was essentially a 10 page summary document that I could actively put in motion um, to be a better leader to my team. And it was remarkable, something that would have I could have spent a month on before. And now I read the 10-page document in 20 minutes, and half an hour later, I was a better leader to my team. I think other areas that are going to be equally impactful is contracts, the ability to evaluate a contract, the ability to write a contract. Um, I will never get another statement of work without asking GPT to evaluate it for potential risks that are not in my best interest. Um, and it's doing these things very quickly. And then I stop bothering our already overburdened legal team 
to get to a summary state, and then I can engage them to make final decisions on this agreement. I think when you start thinking about the, the library of intelligence inside of these large language models and the ability to evaluate publications, contract, agreement, statement of work, um, and look at it through the lens of do things that are in my best interest, we're shaving hours, if not days, off of just me and the time that I would normally spend doing those activities. And for those just tuning in, we are in the company of Matthew Cull, the Chief Information Officer for the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, I think some other areas there that I've seen some, and I've played with it a bit in these is, for example, back in the day, we did an HIV AIDS disease management program. A number of people spoke Haitian Creole. Yep. It took a while to find somebody who could translate those documents, make sure they were right and everything. And uh, uh, and ChatGPT just turned that thing around. Now, obviously, I need somebody with expertise to then look at it. But I mean, like you said, it was seconds to create an educational piece or something like that in that. And there are just numerous areas where this obviously could just crank stuff out very rapidly, save an individual a lot of time. And I think, you know, as I look at it from with my consultant hat on, I realized if you bill everything hourly, you've just completely shot your business to heck um, oh. because you can turn this stuff around so rapidly. And But you've got to look at it and make sure you have the expertise to understand that was right. I got to fix this. I'm adjusting that. But then again, having to write that 10-page report or something, is is the time is just compressed incredibly. Well, and I hate, I wouldn't be the first one to say this. So I'm probably treading on things that lots of people have said or thought. You know, my cousin uh, is a paralegal. And right now, I'm kind of wondering what her career looks like in two years. Um, because these are things that the machine can do incredibly quickly. Um, I'm not certain it's going to replace the final review. I don't think we're there yet, at least for the you know next 12 minutes until there's a new evolution of these technologies. But I, I do think it's it's something that we as a as a society are going to have to spend some time thinking about because i mean it's it's going to be really impactful to some to some trades and some um job categories right we're seeing that with the writer strike and even the screen actors guild strike right now yeah. in terms of, cool. of ai and their their concerns of be, it being used for those and it was fascinating i happened to watch a show with my son the other night south park which was on chat gpt and at the end, they gave a co-writer credit to ChatGPT. Absolutely. Now, whether or not how much they use it or, or did use it, or it was a joke, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure they probably did. <laughs> well, it, you know, and that's actually really interesting, right? And so there's there's a lot of thinking, and one of the things that the screenwriters and the actors are starting to get very concerned about is my screenwriting, my acting, my art is mine, and it's created by my uh, my mind in view of my imagination and the things that I'm doing are a result of the talents that I have. Well, GPT, OpenAI, and all the other large language models are training in the public domain and using that imagination, that talent to reinforce. And at what point does this become a real issue of you're taking my body of knowledge and and appropriating it? and making it part of your collective. Um, and what is my royalty there? What is my right of ownership there? What is, um, 
you know, like I can't go sing a Taylor Swift song and sell it without her um, saying, you know, giving me rights to that. But if you took that same song and used that for intelligence and how lyrics are combined to make and melodies are created, and you AI'd that thing um, to make something slightly different or something similar, are you violating that copyright? I mean, is it no longer mine? And so I think that that's going to be a real concern because GPT, OpenAI, and other language models are getting smarter based on other people's research, based on other people's work product. Um, and I get that that's the same way you and I learn, but what we learn is through our talent, not based on a specific algorithm that's you know arguably close to perfect. Right, right, fascinating. The third area you touched upon was this issue of not having enough staff. And, and healthcare and how this is going to be used to essentially try to augment or, or solve part of that problem or maybe all of that problem. Yeah, I think I, I look in, in my own environment and I know we have nurses that are over that are understaffed, teams that are understaffed. We have um, burdens that continue to be put on bedside caregivers that are, you know, very um additive to what their workload is and might not provide the benefit that them working at top of license can be how do we abstract some of that from their day-to-day -day and move that to machine how do we ensure that we're optimizing um, the need um, at the bedside and so when i think of skill sets that are being underutilized because they're spending time on minutia, um, that doesn't that doesn't make a lot of sense. And here's like a, a really prime example. You think of like how Uber or Waze uses AI to find the, the best, fastest route to go from one side of the city to the other. We should be utilizing that same technology to wayfind and provide routes for transport for nursing staff. When somebody pushes the nurse call button and a nurse has to walk into a room to find out that this patient just wanted ice chips or something to drink or um, versus had fallen, how are we identifying that difference? And can we get um, a nurse to assist in the case of a fall but, or in the case of a mobility need, but not in the case of, I'd like something to drink and maybe we could route that work to a porter. But in-room visualizations, plus intelligent routing of work efforts can do just exactly the thing we're talking about, right? And and I hate it because that, you know, nurses are so burdened at the bedside with so much non-nursing stuff. And I think this is the technology that solves that. I think this is the enabler to ensure that nurses are caring for patients at the bedside. Um, I think it's the same thing with physicians. How do we how do we make that more efficient? You could talk to any physician in the country and ask them about inbox messages and they will cringe. How do we solve the inbox message problem? Right. And can we do that in a way that's not only safe um, and in the uh, appropriate um, manner for the patient, but we're, we can eliminate some of that pajama time. And so yeah. I think that, you know, I, I suspect I'm, probably at a level one of creativeness about this, but there are people who can think about this at a level 100 um, about mm -hmm. how to be creative with using technology to really drive 
the the lowest level work to the machine. Well, it's fascinating when you said, you know, instead of sending the nurse in, send the porter in with the drink, I'm thinking send the robot in with the drink. Send the robot in. I mean, that's yeah. like phase three. Yeah. But but at that point, you know, you really think about this. It, why wouldn't you send the robot in with the drink? Yeah. It's going to be faster. It's probably going to be less burdensome for anybody. Um, and the patient will get exactly what they asked for in less time. And we're not burdening somebody to stop actual bedside care to go and bring a drink. Right. Um, and I don't want to minimize that those activities are important and they improve the patient's experience, but can we also do it in a way that doesn't continue to impact the staffing shortages? Mm -hmm. So I, I know we've got just a couple minutes here and could you sort of briefly, and maybe we can do this in another show, touch upon how you think this might impact population health in about a minute or so? I think that is going to be an incredibly important topic that you and I could pour through over a very long conversation. But Absolutely. thinking back to my, the time when I served at Parkland Hospital, you know, social determinants of health were incredibly impacting to the well-being of of the of our patients, especially in underserved categories. And the amount of information that was available, how where they've lived, how many times they've moved, how many times they've been to food shelter, vaccination status. Um, you know, things as simple as shelter and transportation, the data, the data insights are vast and can drive to very specialized individualized programs to help keep these patients with the care that they need and doing it intelligent. And I think being able to analyze the the social determinants of a unique patient for them for N of one is going to be an absolute game changer in population health. Well, fantastic, Matt. I'd like to thank you for coming on Pop Health Week. It's been a pleasure. we got to get you back on. We'll go in much deeper into this topic. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. It's great speaking with you today. And back to you, Greg. And there you have it, folks. That's the final word on today's broadcast. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in and extend our heartfelt gratitude to Matthew Cole, Chief Information Officer at the Cleveland Clinic. Do follow their work on Twitter via at Cleveland Clinic and on the web via www.clevelandclinic.org. And if you find our work at Pop Health Week engaging, please show your support by liking the show on the podcast platform of your choice, sharing it with your colleagues, and subscribing to stay updated with new episodes as they're posted. We stream live on Healthcare Now Radio at 5.30 a.m., 1.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And for our friends on the West Coast, that's 2.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. Pacific. For Pop Health Week, my co-host Fred Goldstein and myself, Greg Masters, we urge you all to stay safe. And until next time, farewell. Farewell.